It's a presidential election year unlike any other. We'll talk about that and much more on Outspoken, the podcast of the Center for Oral and Public History. My name is Benjamin Cothra. I'm a professor of history here at Cal State Fullerton, and I am an associate director at the Center for Oral and Public History. And today we have a special guest, Natalie Fusakis, the director of the Center for Oral and Public History. We'll be talking about California politics and women in politics. And that will be our focus today. And then later on, we'll hear from Natalie Navarre in our From the Archives segment. But first, we should talk about the California primary. Natalie Fusakis, welcome to Outspoken. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. It's good to have you. And I'm especially excited about this because I know that you're a political junkie and that this is an important time of year when the election cycle hits this spot. You're paying close attention, right? I am. And I think I've been paying close attention to politics ever since I can remember. Um, and especially since I study women in politics and given one of the three major candidates in the California primary last year was last week was Hillary Clinton. Um, and I've been following her candidacy basically since 2008. And that was, in fact, the first time a woman won the California primary for the Democrats. Yes, and I had indeed kind of forgotten that she won the California primary. As history moves on, you forget the little details. And then last week, as we were getting into this year's primary, I went back and looked at what had happened in 2008 and was thinking about the differences between 2008 and 2016. One difference and you can mention others as well, is that it was held earlier for once in 08 than it was this time and almost every other time, the presidential primary, right? Right. Um, and I think Californians um, coming into this year's primary f felt at least six months ago that their voice wasn't really going to be heard, that by June you, things are usually wrapped up. Um, but as you know, this year that wasn't quite the case. Not quite. In fact, when most people think of the California primary, if they think of it at all, they think of 1968, right? Right. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy wins, and then, of course, is assassinated that night in Los Angeles. And very rarely has there been a contested primary since on either side, the Republican or Democrats. Right. And Californians, as many know, has been blue for so long that I think people have forgotten when a primary was even contested. And it certainly wasn't, you know, the primary was contested this year between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. Um, and, and so it was exciting, I think, as a voter and as a historian to be paying attention. And I think the nation was paying attention to California, uh, California's primary. Um, I think for Bernie, it was the last hope um, should he have won the California primary, then maybe he would have some momentum going into um, the convention in July. Um, and for Hillary, I think the, the primary was important because she needed to say, I can win California. I am you know, the dominant candidate in this party, and I deserve to be the nominee for the Democratic Party. Both candidates especially Sanders, but Clinton as well, put a lot of energy into California in the weeks leading up to that election. I was looking back at election coverage from a few months ago, and the consensus at that point seemed to be that it would be the Republican primary in California that was going to be contested because there were so many candidates uh, on the Republican side, and it wasn't clear that anyone had clearly emerged yet. Trump had not knocked out all of the others. Turns out that it was the Democratic side where there was still a fairly competitive race, even though Clinton was, was well ahead, it was still competitive. But Californians got to interact with those candidates and got to have some of their issues talked about. Oh, I mean, you could have seen Hillary or Bernie, um, you know, if in Los Angeles five, six times in the last two weeks, and not just as a big donor. You could have, you know, you, there were huge, Bernie, of course, held huge rallies throughout his campaign, but Clinton held all kinds of open events that anybody could attend. Do you think that's important as well? Because as you said, California has skewed blue now for several cycles, several years, and the candidates, the nominees, when they come back to California from this point on, it's going to be dropping in for fundraising, right? Uh, for high-end donors and not so much to meet and greet or have rallies. 
because the state won't be in play, right? Well, I don't think it'll be in play. I think most people don't think it'll be in play. Certainly, I've heard Donald Trump say that he believes it can be in play. Um, but yes, we have been dominantly blue in presidential races for a very long time now. And as I do think as a California Democrat, it's one of the more um, frustrating things because your voice, your vote matters because obviously you still have to go vote because California is so has so many delegates that are part of the election. But the sense that you could organize, you know, on a grassroots level, get, you know, participate in the campaign, you feel very disconnected from that. Whereas other states, people can go walk precincts and do the kind of stuff which people were doing here in California um, a week and a half, two weeks ago. And that actually felt very exciting to me. There were opportunities to phone bake and walk precincts in my state, which I don't remember that happening Mm -hmm. in my adult life. I came here having spent quite a few years in Missouri. And at that point, Missouri was a battleground state in the 90s and early 2000s. Now it's skewing uh, red, but it was exciting because the debates were held there. The candidates would drop in for for rallies, and and it, it, there's a different kind of energy that that comes to the election. Um, but that is something that Californians aren't used to experiencing. Californians, though, uh, have some very significant issues at stake in this election, from immigration to climate and environmental issues. California's the seventh largest economy in the world. Is there any momentum, do you think, for moving up the California primary in the calendar so that it isn't an afterthought uh, in these races? It seems to me that with that many uh, big issues at stake and with such a large economy in play, what happens in California seems pretty significant and too significant to be left to uh, June at the end of the primary season. What do you think? I think so. I mean, I think in general, Americans have primary fatigue. Um, I think the primary, I think there were, maybe I'll be wrong, but I I would like to see the primary calendar shortened a little bit. I mean, you can't do it too quickly because you need people, the time for candidates to go to these different places. But um, I think most people after five months of a campaign primary season, they're ready to be done. Um, and I think Californians want a voice, and we should have a voice that is earlier in, um, in the primary season. Thinking about Hillary Clinton herself, she's the presumptive nominee. She has enough delegates uh, to prevail, and she now is beginning to, to pivot and, and focus more of her attention on the general election, as she should. But she's significant for a lot of reasons. For, for many people, her candidacy, the fact that she's nominated as a woman for a major political party in the United States is a big deal. Do you think it's a big deal and why? It's if absolutely a big deal. We've never had a woman as the presumptive nominee um, of a major political party. Um, you know, historically, women's role in presidential politics has been not very much. You know, you had Victoria Woodall in the 18, 1872 who runs in the Equal Rights Party, um, but women don't even have the right to vote then. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to 1972, you have Shirley Chisholm who um, makes a, bl- a splash. And I think historians have really been thinking about Shirley Chisholm um, in the last couple of weeks, um, the impact of her and how her candidacy in some ways set up Hillary. Um, and I think that feminists and women in politics thought that when when um, Geraldine Ferraro mm-hmm. was nominated as vice president, I've heard multiple quotes from women who were in politics who who felt that that was going to be the watershed moment for women in politics. Um, but what we know is, yes, um, women were involved in politics in the 80s and 90s, sort of at their peak. And since then, we've actually um, women's percentage of offices held um, has gone down. Um, so I think Hillary Clinton's extremely significant. I mean, as somebody who has studied women and women in politics for most of my academic career, I felt the significance of that moment. And I think Hillary felt the significance of that moment last week. And so did people who don't necessarily support Hillary. I heard lots of Republican women who's, who are either sort of political commentators on CNN, I mean, others who's, who said, look, I may not vote for her, I don't agree with her, but 
we all need to pause and realize that this is a historic moment, just like 2008 was a historic moment when um, Barack Obama was nominated. Yes, and it's been 32 years since Geraldine Ferraro. It's a long time. We had Sarah Palin as a vice presidential uh, mm -hmm. candidate eight years ago, but that's been it at the presidential level. Um, so yeah, it is significant. It's very significant. Do you think that Hillary Clinton's candidacy is more significant for women of her own generation or just after, I guess you could say the generation of second wave feminism that crested in the 60s, early 70s, then it, that candidacy is for younger voters. There, there was a lot made about the fact that Bernie uh, Sanders seemed to be appealing to voters under 40 of both genders. I don't know how pronounced that difference really was, but do you think there is a generational difference in support for Hillary Clinton, and will it matter at all in the general election? Well, yes and no. I think there is a generational difference in the sense that sort of women around my generation and above me who have seen the dearth of women in politics and really spent most of their lives not having a lot of women in major positions of power in the political realm, see Hillary as extremely significant. Uh, the sort of second wave feminists who all along the way were fighting, not necessarily within the political realm, but outside, you know, are the ones who, you know, for no doubt were out behind Hillary. Um, and yes, Bernie, uh, you know, really mobilized young people somewhat in the way that Barack Obama did eight years ago. And I think for some of the younger women, they don't know that they should appreciate Hillary as significantly as they do. I know most young feminists, whether they are 22 or whatever, um, when she was nominated last week, or at least the presumptive nominee, they appreciated the significance. Um, and I think um, they will appreciate it even more as she moves forward um, as the Democratic Party unifies around her candidacy, the contrast between her and Donald Trump, if, even if you have issues on some level with Hillary Clinton, I think younger women will appreciate the difference. And certainly if she's elected, I think they will realize there, there will be a different way of, of governing with a woman in the White House. To me, if there's a split, and there's some exit polling that suggests it, it to me it's actually quite hopeful that people's issues seem to, seem to be on policy, on the level of policy and what's being addressed. If anything, Bernie Sanders put some issues on the table that Hillary Clinton responded to. And now, as you say, in, a, in, a, in the effort to unify the party, some of those issues are still going to be talked about. For example, minimum wage or college tuition, those sorts of things that Hillary Clinton might not have started out her campaign with those issues front and center, but now they're part of her her menu of policies. Well, and I think the other thing to think about is that there, even if you weren't thinking about Hillary's significance, the gender difference or the way that candidates are treated based on their gender was so stark that um, I think perhaps some people who weren't necessarily paying attention and saw Hillary as part of the establishment, Hillary as part of, um, you know, connecting her back to her, her to Bill Clinton, even though she wasn't um, in the White House. She was, you know, she wasn't the official there, but she was in the White House with him. So she gets kind of attached to all of his policies. And I think people forgot what her history was, you know, that she's been working with um, populations that do not have a lot of power for a long time. Um, but I think people, are paying attention to the fact that she's a woman and watching the ways that she's talked about differently than men, the ways that she's critiqued, and in some ways the way she can't win in certain arguments because we don't know what a good woman leader looks like. We evaluate women based on standards that have been existing for years on what male leaders look. So if she talks you know, aggressively, she's seen that's a bad thing where if a man does it, it's seen as a good thing. And I think those differences highlight, you know, what we're dealing with here. And, you know, as she moves forward, I think it's just going to continue. Did Hillary Clinton have to be overqualified in order to do this? 
Oh, absolutely. I think as a woman, you you have to be beyond qualified in order to make it to this level. Because if she wasn't as qualified as she is, then there would be even more reason for people to pick apart. And look, you know, she's not perfect. Any even her most passionate supporters would agree that, you know, she's not a perfect candidate, but really there isn't a perfect candidate. Politics is about compromise. You have to Exactly. You have to decide what kinds of compromises are critical to you. You know, when you decide to choose a candidate, they don't all line up exactly with what I believe, but who believes the most, you know, closest to my beliefs. Um, it's interesting and ironic that President Obama endorsed her uh, very strongly this past week, saying that she's probably the most qualified person ever to run for this office. Well, that's not a statement he made in 08, when she also was highly qualified, right? Um, and he was less, actually less qualified in terms of actual public uh, life experience. Uh, but now he's touting that, her qualifications. As well, a, and she went out and got even more, right? Sure. She, she went, has a global perspective. Her Secretary went of State worked. Secretary of State for him after they had had a pretty bruising, you know, political battle against each other in 2008. She, she got behind him, and then she, you know, got more credentials behind her. It's interesting that you mentioned that the, the number of women in office is lower. How does California fit? Californians seem fairly comfortable with sending, for example, women to the U.S. Senate. They have for the past 20 years or 25 years or so. And even this year, one of the things that happened in the California primary is we have two candidates now for Barbara Boxer's seat. She's retiring from the Senate. Two more women, one from Northern California, one from Southern, one African-American, one Latina, will be competing for that seat. So California seems a little more comfortable, perhaps, with women in high office? Yes and no, I would say. I mean, since 1992, the, the year of the woman, when uh, the Senate went from two uh, women senators to six women senators, and two of those were from California. California has been leading the way in the U.S. Senate. But women are still less than 20% of the U.S. Congress. Um, in California, you know, we're, we're hovering somewhere under 25% of the state legislature and somewhere around 25% of um, city councils. So you know, women are over 50% of the population, and we've never really made it over 30% of the political representation. So while we are comfortable, we are clearly something is not happening that helps women get that, you know, closer to 50%. Uh, Do you think Hillary Clinton's candidacy, especially if it's a successful one, and she's president, will have an impact on that? I do. I think one of the problems is having role models for young women. Um, and, and that's certainly the studies bore that out, that that's one of the problems. So I think if you grow up knowing there is a woman president, then there is a much better chance that you will be able to envision yourself maybe not being president, but at least going into politics. I think there's a second thing, and, and when we talk about the Women in Politics project later in this, We'll get to this, but I do think there's something about how you get women brought into the process of running. And that's something that, you know, you need you need Hillary, but then you also need women to actually step up and run for office. Um, and I, women are still trying to figure out how that to help other women do that. Now, full disclosure, I saw a photograph of you and in the photograph with you was Hillary Clinton. And she was holding a copy of your book, Demanding Child Care. Mm -hmm. But you were doing research that day. You were doing field work. How did, that, how did that happen? What was that about? Well, I was invited to go to a working families rally that Hillary Clinton was having. And that was being hosted by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 11. One of my former students' fathers is high up in that union and was the main organizer of the event. And I thought, since I'm doing a project titled Women, Politics, and Activism, that not only because I um, really wanted to go hear Hillary speak, but also because I wanted to see what kinds of issues she was gonna emphasize in her speech and, um, and, and see the crowd and see what the reception was like. Uh, and so 
I ended up with a really good seat in the front row. And um, a couple things uh, that were really kind of interesting about that. The first thing is she opened with a working mother. A working mother introduced her. And the first thing that that working mother said is the reason why I'm supporting Hillary Clinton is that she has a plan for childcare, to make childcare more affordable. And um, for those of who don't know, my first book uh, titled Demanding Childcare was really about childcare policy and affordable quality childcare. So to me, that was a really interesting start to, and I'm not saying that a male candidate might not have done that too, but I think a woman candidate would be more likely to open up with a what's perceived as a women's issue, but Hillary Clinton's really good at making it. It's a family issue now, right? right. It's a caregiving working, issue. There's two working parents yeah. and people need to be able to figure out how to afford childcare. And so this young Latina woman who has two children and she and her husband are you know, struggling to make ends meet was the woman who introduced Hillary. I think that conversation will start at childcare and end with caregiving in general, yeah. and particularly as the boomer generation ages. Right and uh, working families are going to be hit at both ends of, of the family spectrum. So, but you're right, she, do, she does prioritize that. And if she actually gets a real conversation going at the national level about this, it'll be the first one we've had in quite a while, right. wouldn't it? Yes, uh, I mean, there've been little fits and starts and certainly Obama did his part about talking about needing to have um, preschool funded for all um, Americans, no matter what your income level was, because um, that's certainly one of the disparities between people's education preparedness when they get into kindergarten. Studies show poor communities don't have it, and childcare is wrapped up into um, preschool education. They are kind of one of the one and the same, or they should be one and the same. Um, but a national conversation about childcare hasn't really happened back since since Nixon, um, when. Uh, the Comprehensive Child Development Act passed Congress and then uh, Nixon vetoed it, um, which would have made childcare affordable for on a sliding scale for all families in the United States. Let's take a step back and learn a little bit more about you, how you came to these issues. First of all, you have very deep roots in California. Where do you come from and and when was that time when you know when you knew that you actually really liked politics and liked history? Um, well, my my background is I'm you know I'm like every American I have a, a, a diverse history. My uh, my father was a child of immigrants. His mother immigrated from the Ukraine and his father from Greece um, at the turn of the 19th and the 20th century. Um, and then my mother's family has the long. California roots. I am 10th generation Californian, so uh, my family goes back to the early, early Spanish uh, days exploring um, part of Portola's exploration of California. Um, and in fact, my great grandfather served in the US Senate for, uh, I think it was a year and a half. He was appointed when uh, by the governor of California in the 30s to fill a seat before um, an election. And so and both of my sides of my family were involved in politics. My grandfather on my mother's side was heavily involved in the Republican Party. Um, I haven't fact-checked this, but my understanding was he was either chair of the state Republican Party at one point or high up in the state Republican Party. Um, and my father was a grew up as a New Deal Democrat. Um, and he was in uh, law school with Jerry Brown. And so when Jerry Brown ran for governor, in the 70s, uh, we were, my father was really involved in his campaign. Um, I was young, so I don't have a lot of memories, but I remember we hosted a party and there was always signs on our lawn about Jerry Brown. And as long as I can remember, I, want, I was interested in and engaged in politics. And some of that I think came from the fact that my parents talked about politics. And some of it came from the fact that I remember thinking in second grade, I want to be the first woman president. Um, and I used to state that to my parents and they went, oh yeah, okay, fine. And clearly I took a different path, but um, the political bug never really left me. Um, and after college, I interned for Pete Wilson. Um, I was in college, I prided myself of being, I was a registered Democrat, but I voted across party lines. Um, at the time, Pete Wilson was, when he was in the Senate, he was pro-choice and pro-environment and that, and those, those two issues have been key to my sort of political support for a long time. So I thought, okay, 
I'll go intern for Pete Wilson. I soon learned that I was indeed a full ter- full Democrat and that I could <laughs> never really. Um, but I've always had an appreciation and saw the value of both sides of political arguments. It happened in my household all the time. Um, and I believe as a historian that you need to um, record the stories of both sides of a political argument. Um, and then I went and worked for Barbara Boxer, which was a sort of a, a major shift with a little blip at an environmental group in the middle there. Um, what did you learn during that? Um, well, the reason why I ended up really wanting to work for Boxer, and I think the reason why I ended up studying women in politics was the Anita Hill Clarence Thomas um, hearings um, when Thomas in 1992 what, or 1991 was being confirmed for the US Supreme Court. Um, and I was living in DC, working in DC, really caught up in the political thing. I wouldn't, I'm not even sure I labeled myself as a feminist at the time, but I remember watching and wondering how it is, number one, that you could have a judiciary committee with all men on it deciding about whether somebody had, you know, whether a nominee had sexually harassed his, um, his, his worker and then and watching Barbara Boxer and Pat Schroeder and Patsy Mink march over from the House of Representatives, demanding that women's voices be heard. Um, and really, I think I talked my way into a job in Barbara Boxer's office because I ended up randomly being on vacation at the same place she was. And we sat on the beach and I was still so angry about Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas and why women's voices weren't part of the political process that I think she was quite, you know, she she said, okay, well, at least this young girl has passion. Um, and so from then on, I really was interested in women in politics and working for her, she, you know, she's been outspoken, especially about you know, a woman's right to choose for as long as they come. And really when she was in the house, one of the most sort of vocal feminist voices in the House of Representatives so when I went to grad school, I had gone to grad school thinking I was going to study the Vietnam War, and I land in grad school and start talking to my advisors about studying women in politics. Um, and they send me down a path of maybe I should write a biography of you know, Margaret Chase Smith, um, who was you know the first woman to serve, be elected into the U.S. Senate. Um, but I somehow that biography seemed like too narrow of an approach uh, for me. And you found your way to the concept of grassroots activism in politics, right? And I don't know if everybody really grasps what that is all about. How do you think of it and how did that translate into your research that you eventually undertook? Um, well, so I, I think one of the reasons that I ended up studying grassroots politics is that where that's where you found the women. That's where the women, you could study women in politics, especially in the 40s, 50s, and 60s because the number of women in U.S. offices were infinitesimal, you know, Margaret Chase Smith and later on a couple others, but there was almost nothing, and it, certainly in the California legislature as well, and all around the country, there were very, you know, one woman here, one woman there, and so the way that you could look at where women in politics were was to look at women outside and how they were influencing those in positions of power. Um, and so I started looking at studying women in the 40s, 50s, and 60s when we really thought at the time, hmm, women aren't there, right? Women are just not part of politics. Or the women that are there, for example, many, many Southern governorships passed from a term-limited husband to a, to a wife who was reached office that way. That happens in several Southern states during that period. Right, and the narrative was really, okay, there was a suffrage movement, we get women in the suffrage movement, and then we don't see them again until the modern women's movement. But they were there, and they were advocating outside in all kinds of communities all across the United States. And I really wanted, I ended up, instead of trying to focus on one woman, I decided to focus on an issue that I thought would, um, bring women together of all socioeconomic backgrounds. And I was fascinated by the fact that in the early days of the modern women's movement, childcare actually wasn't advocated by the National Organization for Women, that the main feminist organizations weren't, even though it was there, they weren't pushing for it in a way that I, in my sort of young scholarly thought they would be. 
And so then I went back and thought, okay, what was the history of childcare and how, how had women been speaking on behalf of it? And this idea of grassroots politics is really to look at what people are doing outside of what we consider the traditional public realm, right? The state legislature, and that you need to look in these alternative spaces where women were organizing. In the case of my book, it was really they were organizing in the childcare centers themselves. But you can see them in other things. They were organizing in the PTA. They were organizing, they were turning these traditional women's organizations into actually grassroots politics that were learning. They were training women how to advocate for themselves since they didn't have anybody elected that looked like them, that had their perspective. They had to convince a body of men to understand their perspective. And they do that, I've read your book, they do that in part by using their identity as mothers to political advantage, right? Right. That's the way they sort of get that conversation. Well, in really the 40s going. and 50s, they had to use their identity as mothers because otherwise they would be seen as too radical, mm -hmm. right? And in the era of the suburban housewife, even though, as you and I both know, and as most historians know, the suburban housewife was an iconic image and that even those who lived in the suburbs couldn't hold up to that ideal image, but they couldn't just blow up that image while they were advocating. So they had to find a way to say, we are mothers, we wanna be the best mothers we can, we wish we could stay home with our kids, but we need, um, we need childcare in order to be the best mothers that we can and provide our kids with the quote unquote values that will allow them to um, be raised and be successful. Now, this is a story with national implications and still unresolved issue, of course, we've already discussed, but it's a California story too. Yeah, That must have been part of the appeal to you as a native Californian. It was, it was certainly. And I, you know, when I started looking around for how to approach studying childcare, I happened on one article that said that California was the only state between World War II and the war on poverty to have a statewide public childcare program. And the more I got into it, I realized that the reason why they had this statewide public childcare program is because there was a well-trained group of mothers and educators who fought for this childcare program year after year um, from 1945 at the end of World War II all the way into, well, through the 1960s. Um, and so, you know, I spent a time trying to figure out why California was unique. And certainly one of the reasons was just that we had so much war industry and so many migrants here that our economy wasn't going to slow down in the way that some of the other wartime places, we became the military industrial complexes um, drive in the, in the late 40s and into the 50s. And so even though military bases might've shrunk in some places in California, those bases stayed and the, the industries that support the military were still um, very much in play in that period. Now, we're going to talk about your new project, Women, Politics, and Activism, but I wanted to ask, did those grassroots activists set a kind of precedent for women's later political involvement, even in electoral politics in California? Uh, were they trailblazers in that respect? I think they were trailblazers in two ways. One, um, they set a model for being an active, engaged citizen. So that even if you are somebody who isn't in a position of power, you have power using your political voice. And by that, I mean by voting, by going and speaking to your legislator, by writing letters, by, by making sure that your voice, even if it's not there in Sacramento, is heard. The second thing is that they were making feminist arguments, even if they themselves might not have claimed that they were making feminist arguments. They were arguing for women to be treated equally in the workplace that for women to be workers, they needed affordable quality childcare, that they shouldn't have to either pay too much or sacrifice on the education level, that the kinds of care that their kids received. And to me, that is a feminist idea and something that the women's movement would then pick up on and, and women in politics would pick on, up on later. And as we said, it, it now is still potentially a major plank, uh, point of discussion even in this election campaign because it's unresolved even after all this time. But I want to, by the way, folks, again, the book is Demanding Child Care by Natalie Fusakis, University of Illinois Press. Hillary Clinton has a copy, do you? Uh, let's move from there to your current project, which is uh, the WPA project, and it's not a new deal 
Alphabet Soup Agency. It's the Women, Politics, and Activism Project. And I think it's a really exciting time to be launching this project, as you have over the past year or two, uh, given, given this extraordinary political moment that we're at. So tell us about this project. How did it come about? And where is it going? Well, as, as we've well established, women in politics has been sort of um, part of my scholarly and personal interest for a really long time. And in 2013, when um, there were two women running for city, for mayor in Los Angeles, and there was a possibility of either there being no women or only one woman on the LA City Council, there was a whole slew of articles about women in politics, but particularly women in local politics and why there was a decline. Um, and then, so it had me thinking about that issue that we already talked about, sort of why is it that women are still kind of hovering around 25% or in the case of the Los Angeles City Council right now, they're only 6% of the LA City wow. Council because we only have one woman on the LA City Council, Nuri Martinez. Um, and then the second thing was, of course, as a historian, I was looking forward to the 2019-2020 celebration of the 100th anniversary of women getting the right to vote in the United States in the suffrage campaign. And I thought that it would be, as a historian, we should be recording more of the stories of women locally who've been involved in politics. I think we tend to look nationally and forget the local sometimes. And really, frankly, the women who are elected locally have much more effect on my daily life, your daily life, and, and my students' daily lives than, than whether Hillary Clinton gets elected or any of, of these other senators. You know, we can feel the effects of what they do at a local level. So I, I launched a project that has a long view. Um, the beginning of this project is, um, right now it's 150 interviews, I think with women who are engaged in either grassroots politics, so still taking up what I, you know, advocating outside of government for an issue, um, or women elected in local office here in, in Southern California, both in Orange County and Los Angeles County. And I was fortunate enough to get a major research grant from the John Randolph and Dora Haynes Foundation um, to support this. Uh, my my goal is hopefully to expand this to be interviews with about 300 to 400 women, perhaps. Um, what I found is that there really is still a lot of stories of women in politics that had not been recorded. Uh, and so um, I launched this with my students long before I had the funding, and then I got the funding. And so for this year and next year, I have an, uh, a group of students working with me to um, go interview women in local elected office, or mostly formerly local elected office, and then women who are advocating for women's health, LGBT issues, um, any issue you can think of that, that women might have a, a particular voice and leadership on. I wanted to ask you about your students. Uh, what sorts of things do you train them to do, and what's been their response to being involved in this this project? Well, so my students are involved in either two ways. One, they are involved just by being students in my oral history course. Um, I've made this project the theme of my oral history course um, really since 2014. Um, and what I train them to do is, so I train them in the general methodology of oral history. I train them a little bit in women's history and the history of women in politics. And then I really train them to do interviews that are as much topical as they are life history. So that we are not just recording the stories of what these women did as grassroots activists or as women in elected office, but really where they came from to ask the questions about how it is a woman ends up getting engaged in the public realm, whether she's advocating from the outside or, or within. And my students have had the opportunity to interview an amazing array of uh, political and grassroots activists, everything from uh, women whose mothers whose sons have been uh, shot by the police and then have advocated on behalf of their children, but also other victims of uh, police brutality and police violence and to try to help solve that problem locally. Uh, we've had 
interviews with women involved in both the Republican and the Democratic Party locally, um, environmental activists, um, peace activists, um, and then certainly a lot of women on the city council, both here in Orange County and in Los Angeles. Me, I personally have been making my way through interviewing every former woman who served on the LA City Council, but my students have interviewed women on the Whittier City Council, the first woman on the Tustin City Council, uh, Costa Mesa City Council, Huntington Beach City Council, you name it. Um, we've been interviewing women, Anaheim City Council. Um, so that's, that's really what the students have been doing. And they've really been able to not only interview these amazing women, but you know, form a relationship with them. Sometimes that transcends and goes past the actual project or class itself. That's really exciting, and it's a great experience for students. Um, the concept of doing oral history, I know for more than one student uh, since I've been here, has, has really changed the direction of their lives. They see history in an entirely different way, and they, they see their own place in scholarship in a very different way, in exciting ways. So that's great. So you've been conducting these interviews, many of them yourself. What are some of the interviews that stand out or some of the moments that you've experienced that have been really special? Um, well, before I do that, there's one thing I, I didn't say when we were talking about the project more generally, which is that, you know, I got into this project to try to answer some of these questions as best as we can as historians about why is it that I can't answer why women aren't getting into politics, but I can provide the qualitative research behind why women do get involved. So if we do these long biographies with them, we find out the reasons why, what leads a woman to, to run for office, what leads her to get involved. And I think, um, you know, to have those stories out there, um, we're going to have a website where all these things will be available eventually. I think that will help teachers, they will help the public understand the stories of, of and how women, and the, certainly to lead back to your question, I think one of the things that's been most interesting to me is listening to these women and talking about what um, what they did before they got in, involved in politics and why it, what 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 changed it for them. Um, so earlier this week, last week, a week ago actually, I interviewed Cindy Mizelkowski, who served on the LA City Council from 1997 until 2005, and she was there during the term limits that only allowed you to have two terms. It's now three terms, but um, and what was really interesting is I she had been on a track to become. A, a chemist and wanted to become the first woman astronaut. She was here in California um, attending uh, college involved in, while she was at UCLA, uh, Robert Kennedy's campaign. She spent a good portion of the early part of her interview talking about the fact that watching Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy be assassinated in 1968 changed her entire trajectory. She switched her major from chemistry to political science and realized that she needed to go on a path of public service. She wasn't, she said it didn't immediately go, I need to run for office someday, but I need to do something that has an impact on the lives of my community um, from, from this period forward. Um, there are others um, that stand out. I interviewed Joy Pikus, who was, I think, the fifth woman to serve on the LA City Council. Um, she was elected in the late 70s, and she served, there weren't term limits at that point, so she served from 1997 to, no, from 1977 to 1993. When I interviewed her, she's 84, almost 85 years old, and had never been interviewed. And to me, that was sort of unbelievable. Uh, and what, really fascinated me about Joy. I mean, she had an incredible, I spent four hours with her, so she had mm -hmm. lots lots to say. Um, and she had really gotten her start as a woman in the 1950s involved in the League of Women Voters and the American Association of University Women. So even though she did the traditional, she married, she had her children, she lived in suburbia, but all along the way, she was involved in politics and civic life via the League of Women Voters. So finally, when she runs for office in 1993, she has kind of a very strong policy background because the league is really good at educating its members and really, frankly, educating the public about issues. When she gets on the LA City Council in the 80s, she's responsible for two very important women's issues. So she had a very family-centered, working family-centered policy approach when she was city councilwoman. And so 
She's responsible for the city having its first child care coordinator, somebody who would coordinate child care policy for the city, but also responsible for getting the first child care center established for city workers in downtown LA. And the second thing that she was involved in was pay equity. Los Angeles was yeah. one of the first major cities in the US to have an agreement with its union in the its state city government union in the 1980s that women who worked at job levels that were equivalent to male job levels should then be paid the same amount. Um, and that was a huge deal. She actually was um, elected Ms. Magazine's Woman of the Year in 1985 because of, of that issue. And then I'll the last one is, um, it, ironically, her successor in her seat, um, who, uh, Laura Chick, who served on the LA City Council from 1993 to 2001, and then was the city's first elected, first female elected to citywide office. She was elected to city controller in 2001. And here's where I think the difference of having women in office, they are not gonna, you know, they're not better than men. They just come with a different perspective. And so her job as controller was to shine the light on things that weren't operating well in the city and to do studies. And one of the things that she did was she did an investigation of rape kits that had been sitting on the shelves in LAPD. When she did her audit of the LAPD's rape kits, she found that there were 7,000 rape kits that had never been tested. And a good 200 plus of them, the statute of limitations had already gone by. Wow. And in the interview, I asked her if she thought that the fact that she was a woman made a difference in her paying attention to this issue. And, you know, I think so, and she thought so, absolutely. She had said that uh, violence against women had always been an issue that was something that she wanted to make sure we addressed. And so by pointing to this audit, it, it did not show, you know, LAPD was doing all great other things, but for some reason, you know, rape was not on its priority list. So she press. provides a different lens and sees different things and right, it becomes a priority. Right. And I could give you stories from all of these interviews, not just the ones that I've done, but the ones that my students and my staff have done here that, that show that there might be a slightly different, and these women comment on what they think the distinct perspective that women bring to public life and that they believe that there should be more women because of those distinctions. Well, let's hear some of those voices. We've got the recordings, and Natalie Navarre, with her segment from the archive, is ready to share some of those with us. Let's listen. Hello, my name is Natalie Navarre, and I'm the archivist for the Center for Public History. This part of Outspoken is called Out of the Archives. This is where I'll be highlighting certain oral histories and other findings from our collections. Today, I'll be focusing on interviews done for our most current oral history project, Women, Politics, and Activism and Suffrage, or as we call it in the office, WPA. This project has been selected by the John Randolph Haynes and Dora Haynes Foundation for a major research grant. Our director, Dr. Natalie Fusakis, is leading the oral history project. The first phase of this project involves interviewing 300 to 400 women in Southern California who have actively engaged in politics and activism from the post-World War II era to the present. We want to document these women's voices to demonstrate the myriad of ways women have participated in activism from formal elected office to local community-based organizations. Throughout this segment, we will be listening to clips of oral histories where women from this project talk about the importance of females in politics. We also want to highlight a couple oral histories where women speak about Hillary Clinton, as Clinton has made history by becoming the first woman to lead a major party in the race for the presidency of the United States. Overall, I will play six clips from five women from our WPA project. The first clip you will listen to comes from an oral history with Mary Hornbuckle. She is a former mayor of Costa Mesa and the president of the Board of Trustees for the Coast Community College District. This interview was conducted by student Norman Zeldin in October of 2014. Listen as she discusses her feelings on women's representation in politics. A woman's voice needs to be represented at all levels of government. Um, I think it's extremely important um, for women's views to be represented. You know, it's, it isn't right for a community to be lopsided. Um, men have, have pretty much run the country for as long as I can ever remember. And I think that the more women that get involved, the more moderation there is in, um, in political viewpoints, but also in our attitude about war, in our attitude about other people. 
So I think it's extremely important, and I would love to see more girls get involved. The next clip you will listen to is part of an oral history of Joy Pikus. She was the first woman to represent the San Fernando Valley on the Los Angeles City Council. This interview was conducted by Dr. Natalie Fusakis on May 12, 2015. When she was asked why she thinks it's so important to have women's voices in politics, this was their answer. I've often said that any legislative chamber is benefited by diversity, by people from different backgrounds, so that you not only need men and women, and you need uh, African Americans and Latinos and uh, and Native Americans, and there certainly aren't very many of them, and Asians, but you need the teacher and the uh, and the doctor and the nurse and the engineer and the lawyer and people from a very wide range so that they bring their experiences, their knowledge, their perspective to the issues before you. And for that reason, it's important to have women. Almost every issue is a woman's issue. How can you talk anything economic without saying it? it it, it, it's important to women. It has to be. There are certain issues that women are more involved in, uh, but all issues relate to women. The next narrator I will highlight is Laura Chick, another former Los Angeles City Councilwoman. The oral history was conducted again by Dr. Natalie Fusakis on May 3, 2016. Listen as she also answers the question of why it's important to have women's voices in politics. Because we change the dynamics and we change them for the better. But even if I didn't make the argument about changing for the better, just having a better mix that represents what this world is all about is very important. And it's been scientifically proven that we are different. Our brains are different, i.e. our behavior is different. And a mix is good because we are a mix in terms of the public that is served. Um, And then I would also point out that men have been in charge for a very long time and I will ask everyone out there, do you like the way things are today? The answer is across the board, no. Well, okay, then if we think things aren't so great, why not get some people in at the table who haven't been there before? Because maybe they'll do things better. The fourth snippet comes from an oral history with Helen Torres. She is the executive director of Hispania's Organized for Political Equality, HOPE. The interview was conducted by student Jael Mueller on August 25th, 2015. Listen as she talks about Latinas' voices in politics and activism. I think there's a variety of different voices that we have, right? Um, I just want there to be more voices. I think you almost have a Latina voice at every level. I just want them to be a choir. I don't want it to be one voice, you know? And so how, do, how do we build up the choir? Um, that's what I love to be working towards. And now, as we celebrate a historic moment for women in politics, I will share two clips with you. One is from someone who we have already listened to, former Los Angeles City Councilwoman Laura Chick. Listen as she talks about the impact Hillary Clinton would have if she is elected president of the United States. Huge. It'll be huge. I mean, starting from day one, girls will start thinking about being president in a whole different way than possibly happens now. I mean, I just don't think it happens now very often. Um... So that fits with what I'm saying to you, is you've got to know somebody, you've got to see somebody. Um, She will be an unbelievable role model. The last clip I will play for you is from an oral history I conducted with the first woman elected as mayor of Tustin, Ursula Kennedy, on December 3rd, 2013. When I asked her if she thought women had a voice in politics, this is how she answered. Absolutely. It's, It's getting, it's getting, it's growing. It's just so frustrating how slow it's growing. Um, I know that uh, we've had a woman run for vice president already, and I paid great tribute to her. I was very, very, very happy when that happened. It was a long time ago now, and we haven't had one until recently come forward. Uh, I think Hillary Clinton is definitely going to run for vice president or president. I don't know which yet. I will welcome that. I believe she is tough. I believe she is smart, and I believe she would be a great leading officer of our country. So I look forward to that and look forward to it becoming as common as it is in Tustin. 
I hope everyone went out and voted on June 7th. Remember, voting is important. It's our right, not a privilege. Also, if you were interested in any of these oral histories, you can come on by to cough, and either I or one of my lovely co-workers will help you. Along with the WPA project, we have around 300 oral history projects that contains almost 6,000 oral histories. Go to our website at cough.bulletin.edu to research more. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. It's the summer, a great time to catch up on your research. I hope to see you soon, and thank you for listening to Out of the Archives. So those are some of the voices, Natalie. What is the future of these recordings? What will their availability be for people? What is their future at the center, and how can people follow what's happening? Well, like everything we do here at the center, I don't want to just record these stories and have them sit in our archive, because I think they're important, and I think the public um, should hear them, know them understand them and hopefully that it will change their understanding of women who are involved in public life and civic life. Um, so first, the first way that the public will have access is that eventually all of the interviews that have been conducted under the WPA project will be available on a website in full, searchable through a database so that you will be able to type in Los Angeles City Council and every person that you know served on that, you would, all those interviews would come up. If they're video, you can watch the video, read the transcript, um, and, and my hope is that people will, students will use them, the community will see them, um, and that those stories will provide new conversations. The second way that the public will be able to engage in them is once, um, when we get closer to 2019-2020, um, my colleague, uh, Dr. Margie Brown Cornell, who was in our first podcast, um, and I will collaborate on a major exhibition that looks at women's involvement first in the suffrage movement both nationally and in california and then women's involvement since suffrage in public life and the second piece of that will really highlight the voices uh, that we've recorded um, for this uh, for this project and then finally um, and maybe we'll have an online component to that exhibition it really is going to depend on how good of a fundraiser i am um, for the project and then finally, we want to take these stories into the schools. And two of the ways that we are um, thinking about doing that is one, um, we, we like to create oral history-based performances here um, at the center. And so we will create a new performance based on um, these oral histories and, and, and some of the voices from the suffrage movement too, to try to make a comprehensive you know, public presentation that way. And then second, we're going to try to develop some exhibition panels that um, can be put up in schools. Um, I'm working with uh, Connie DeCapit, who organizes a lot of our educational connection to schools in the community. And so we're gonna work on seeing if we can have some traveling panels that go from schools to create those conversations. So in case the students can't make it to our exhibition, maybe a little bit of our ex exhibition can go there because my sense is that the schools will be making a big deal about the 100th anniversary of women getting the, the right to As vote. well they should. Um, Natalie Fusakis, thanks so much for coming to Outspoken today. This is not going to be our last conversation this year, though. It's a big political year, and we'll be checking back in with you at a couple of points along the way. Uh, I have a feeling it's going to be one of the most interesting elections of our lifetimes. <laughs> the candidates are most intriguing, and the issues are crucial and important. So I want to keep following the election with you, if that's all right. Yes. Come back to Outspoken. Uh, so that wraps up our Outspoken podcast number two. I want to thank Natalie Fusakis for joining us today. I loved it. Thank you very much. For our producer, Carrie Rael, this is Benjamin Cothra saying until next time, it's been Outspoken from the Center for Oral and Public History. <laughs>